production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Two-time Academy Award winner Gina Davis is best known for her roles in Thelma and Louise, A League of Her Own, Beetlejuice and The Accidental Tourist. Even though she is no stranger to the spotlight, Gina says she grew up full of insecurities and self-criticisms, acting giving her the ability to be someone else. In the conversation of this hour, we discuss being diagnosed with ADD in her 40s, the Me Too movement, and how a Hollywood director changed how she forever saw the industry and the impact her friendships with Susan Sarandon and Dustin Hoffman had on her life. We sort of knew that the female parts were second-class citizens and that the male was the star and you had to be accommodating or fit in or and, and it felt like we didn't have any power. Even if we'd been the lead in several movies, you still felt like you didn't have any power. And certainly that you wouldn't complain about anything. And that changed. In some ways it stuck. For example, that now if a female actor learns that they're making less than their co-star or less than they should or whatever, they will talk about it publicly and it will get rectified. And that was never the case before. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Gina Davis is the author of her new memoir, Dying of Politeness, a touching account of one woman's journey to fight for herself and ultimately fighting for women all around the globe. In its essence, this conversation is about the hard-wrought journey to authenticity and standing up for what you believe in to live a more empowered and truthful life. My hope is that this conversation is a powerful reminder of the influence of the individual to create positive change and make a positive impact in this world. Gina Davis, welcome to A Life of Greatness. You're an incredible person who has had an incredible career. And I want to start at the beginning and dive into your childhood, which you write a lot about in your new book, Dying of Politeness. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is that there were a lot of calls to your mother, you say, that said that there must be something wrong with you. And I, <laughs> I, 
I, I wonder why that was. Oh, my God. You know, it really, it seemed to me in hindsight that it was all related to doing something that maybe girls weren't supposed to do. Yeah. L- literally being being loud bothered people. I, I'm talking about like neighbors. This was calls from neighbors. Yes. Because I had a paper route. So people got to observe me a lot walking around my neighborhood. You know, and a lot of time I was in my own world. I was singing to myself and feeling very unselfconscious. And whenever I, it seems like whenever I felt very unselfconscious was when people wanted me to feel subconscious <laughs> and rein it in. And and it, it it really hurt my feelings a lot because I loved the times when I was feeling free and just being me and on my own. You know, it was almost always when I was just on my own, like when I was delivering my newspaper route or walking around the neighborhood or whatever. And uh, that's when, uh, yeah, people started not to approve of the way I was behaving. It's such a funny thing, isn't it? Because with kids, and you obviously have some kids as well, I have two of my own, the whole thing about being a child is to allow them to be like that. To, I mean, that's the point where you can get away with being silly or creative and being in that imaginative space because you are actually just a child. You say you grew up in Massachusetts. You talk a lot about the church and going to the church a lot as a child. And I wonder, did religion have a part of that? Or why do you think that it seemed that you couldn't just be yourself? For those... Cases, no, I don't think it was was religion. We were Protestants and, and yeah, went to church regularly and, and all that, but we were Congregationalists, which is a very gentle yes. <laughs> version of, uh, you know, it's very loving and forgiving and not judgmental. And so, it was, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like people in the church or anything. It was just about being a girl, I think. Mm. I think if a boy was doing the things I was doing, there would be absolutely no comments made. If a boy was being boisterous or loud or free-spirited, I don't think there would have been any judgments. You have some really funny stories going to church within the book. And I wonder, do you still follow that religion now? And was that a big part of your upbringing? Did that shape you a bit and your values? The church was a huge part of my upbringing because we went every Sunday, no matter no matter what. And I also sang in the church choir, and I was in the church youth group, and I took Sunday school when I was little. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a big part of our lives. But it wasn't, it's weird, but I wouldn't call my family particularly religious. <laughs> in fact, my folks never talked about religion. We just went to church, you know, and that was just what we do. My dad would say grace when there was a special occasion, like it was Thanksgiving or (laughs) Christmas or something, but it wasn't something that was dominant in our lives, I would say. Do you still go to church now and do you still kind of practice that religion? I don't go to church. I haven't for uh, most of my adult life. I miss the communal Mm. aspect of it and uh, and I loved singing in the choir. That's really fun. Yeah, I just, it just kind of faded as as far as like, something that I felt compelled to do. It just kind of faded away. Yes. Your book is called Dying of Politeness, and that is obviously such a big theme throughout. And you have some really pertinent stories to to talk about with the whole idea that you had to be polite. And one specifically is 
to do with a car accident that nearly happened. And I'd love you to tell us a bit about that to to talk about this whole theme of politeness. When I was about eight, I was in a car with my parents in the back seat, and the driver was my great uncle Jack, who was 99 years old. It was nighttime, and he's a thousand years old. He's wearing these big yellow glasses, I guess, to help him see at night or something. And thankfully, it was a very empty road because he kept weaving into the oncoming traffic lane and then weaving back into the correct lane. And like, and, then, and nobody was coming, but it was horrifying. My parents got very still and staring straight ahead. And then they put me in between them because I don't, I don't, uh, they thought maybe I would die a little bit less if I was in the middle <laughs> instead of behind the driver. But anyway, at one point, he veered into the oncoming lane and now down the road was a car coming. And there was no room for anybody to pull off. We were going to have a head-on collision if he stayed in that lane. And my parents didn't say anything. <laughs> they just stared straight ahead. And we were within seconds of crashing. And my great aunt Marianne finally says, a little to the right, Jack. <laughs> and he swerved the wheel just in time. And the car whizzed by us within, you know, inches of, uh, of us. And it was only later in thinking about it that I realized my parents were willing to die, literally die, and me with them, rather than potentially offend my thousand-year-old uncle. Uh, and so it's so funny, but it's also unfathomable in a way that they weren't going to do anything to save their lives. And they could have said something like, well, she said something very polite, a little to the right, Jack. You know, they could have, they could have easily said, hey, Jack, what about you, you know, whatever. They didn't have to say, oh, my God, you're going to kill us. Pull over. But they couldn't think of what to say. But I've been in that situation so many times where I've been literally paralyzed, not knowing what it's okay to say. I still have that. I still have that sometimes. Why were they like that? I mean, they were very, very old-fashioned New Englanders. They both grew up in Vermont. It seems like all this is in analysis later in life, but it seems like they felt that the main goal of life or the most important goal was to never be any trouble to anybody else. No one must ever, ever be required to put themselves out for you. So, for example, if I was visiting somebody and would you like a piece of candy? Would you like whatever? Even if it was a glass of water they've already poured, I had to say, oh, no, thank you. I'm not thirsty. Because to have a need was somehow shameful. And But on the other hand, you have to give, 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 give to, to, to everybody else. But it was self-effacing to like mm. the furthest possible degree. Yeah, It's so interesting because I've got a grandma, bless her. She's 92 and she's exactly like that. And my, oh. it's my mum's mum and she always says she could be half dead on the ground. <laughs> but she's fine. No, no, I'm no trouble. I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. It's like you're clearly not okay. You've just fallen. We can help you. But it's this thing, like I suppose some people, they just have it in them. They don't want to cause anyone trouble and they don't want to be a fuss. Right. And right. they give, give to so many others 
but they just don't want to seem like they're at all a hardship when it's so not like that. It's like as humans, we just want to give to each other. It actually gives us such pleasure to be able to help another. So it's never like, oh, that person, they're draining us. We want as humans to be able to help our fellows. It's an interesting thing and your book picks up on this so well when people are like that, the habits that it can then instill in you that, as you mentioned, you're still a bit like that now. Um, and how that can kind of have an effect. Your mum and dad were probably only trying to do the right thing. Absolutely. For most of my life, my parents wouldn't let me call them. They insisted that they had to call me so they could pay for the... And this is after I've been I've been the star in movies. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, you know, by this point. And no, no, we have to call you so that you don't have to pay for the phone call. Uh, but that's it. That's both of them through and through. That Bless. Was them. That's so sweet. You do have quite a full on story. You mentioned that you did the paper run as a child and yeah. there was an incident that you had with a man that you would deliver the paper to, if you could talk to us a bit about that. Yes. I was about 10 years old when I got the paper route and he lived upstairs in a house I delivered to and I would go up the stairs I always delivered the papers to everybody in person. I never just left it on the stoop. And uh, I went up there and knocked and would give it to him. And then eventually he started inviting me to come in for a little chat or whatever. And then he started giving me treats, hostess cupcakes or Twinkies or something. And and then he wanted to hug, which I, I thought was fine. I don't, I don't know. And it, like, hugs lasted a long time. Anyway, he started molesting me. And... I had no idea what it was. I'd never been taught anything about anything. I didn't even know the concept that you had private parts. Yes. <laughs> it was just very confusing to me. I don't know what it is that he's doing, but maybe it's part of hugging. I don't know. But I finally, it was so strange to me that I finally showed my mother what he was doing. I said, what, why does he do this? And she rocketed through the ceiling strode down the middle of the road to his house and went upstairs and confronted him. I I wasn't with her and I didn't know what she said or what went on, but um, she came back and said, you're never to go up there again, leave the paper at the bottom of the stairs. So I didn't, until I'm old enough to find out, I didn't know what that was about forever. I just knew that something terrifically shameful had happened and very, very significant because I'd never seen her behave like that before. When did you then put the pieces of that puzzle together? I I was so naive that in a way it wasn't traumatizing as mm. it was happening because I didn't know that I had any autonomy over my body whatsoever, that that, that would even be an option to not want somebody to touch you anywhere they wanted. That's been pretty stunning to think about that I would have been that cut off from any sense of autonomy. I have kids that they're young, similar age to what you were then. And it's like that fine line of kind of wanting to tell them about privates and this and that, but also keeping their innocence and not going, well, it's this and this, and but them kind of freaking out. And I wonder after you've had that happened to you, how you speak to your own children about that? I took a self-defense class many years ago 
that was really great. It was a great idea. And I went to a graduation of children. They had a class for uh, three and four and five, very little kids. And I just was bawling through the whole thing. It was, it was so impactful, so wonderful because they taught them that it's okay not to have people touch you yes. in a way that you, that that you don't want like let's say they act out all these different scenarios you're taking piano lessons and the teacher keeps touching your hands and saying no do it like this do it like this and they taught them how to say it's okay you don't have to touch my hands i can do it myself or yes. or whatever and to see little kids <laughs> Say these things, or you know, if the coach is hugging you a lot and it doesn't seem right, you could say, "I'd rather not hug." And they practiced how to find somebody and tell them if they want that person won't listen to them and stop. Then you find somebody else, or you tell your parent or whatever. And uh, so I tried to be like that with my kids, very open about the idea that uh, nobody nobody gets to touch them if they yeah. if they don't want to. I I was subscribed to the whole thing of. Nobody has to kiss their yes. relative. Nobody has to have a hug with someone that they don't want to and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because if we come from that whole, like, give Uncle David a kiss goodbye. It's like, I don't want to kiss Uncle David goodbye, but we're always forced to by our parents because they were just, as your book says, they're just trying to be polite. And it's like, why right. do I always have to kiss him? I don't want to kiss him. And I have thought about that a lot with my kids, that if they don't want to, they don't feel like it, then why yeah. should they? I mean, right. it's not, it doesn't make sense. So mm-hmm. no, exactly. that's a really pertinent thing to mm-hmm. have. You spoke about your dad in the book and you said something so beautiful about him that he instills in you the belief that you could do anything. And I just thought mm. that was such a, such a lovely line. And you also talk about from the age of three wanting to be this actor and I, from age four, wanted to be an actor. I mean, I don't act now, but I knew, I know the feeling that you had because I watched yeah. The Wizard of Oz and I was so mesmerised with Dorothy and everything. Oh. And I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. And I wonder, let's talk about your dad instilling that belief in you and also then you knowing that you wanted to be this actor from such a young age. I don't think it was some conscious decision that yes. he made, but this is how I'm going to be with her or anything. But, but he just treated me from, from the very beginning as if I was very capable and competent. It's, there's a hurricane. We're going to go down in the basement and get the hurricane lanterns and you're three and you're going to come with me and you're going to carry them and you're going to light them and just always had me help him. If he was on the roof, you know, or painting the side of the house or something on a scaffolding, then I was too. And it was just very, very, very natural. And his dad lived next door and he was like that too with me, always showing me how to do stuff. And uh, so so that was a great way to grow up because I really did. And uh, I guess I still do. I feel like I can pretty much figure stuff out for myself that I can, I can do it myself. So that's, that's fantastic. And then, yeah, the acting thing. I don't know. People are always very curious. What was it you saw? Mm. Like you saw Wizard of Oz, but I don't know what it was I saw because I decided at three, what would I have watched by then? I think we only watched like (laughs) Like animated animated movies (laughs) or, or, you know, preschool TV shows or something. But, but that was it. I don't remember announcing to them because I was so young, but they said that I said that that's what I was going to be. And it never, ever wavered. 
Mm. Never wavered. I find this interesting with acting. What was it about wanting to be someone else? I think that it wasn't conscious in any way, but that that's what I was after, the uh, the opportunity to be someone else. Yeah. Because I was, was very, very self-conscious as a kid. I was always super tall, and I couldn't stand people to look at me or to stand out in, in any way. And uh, And like I said, even the times that I more or less accidentally did stand out, I would get uh, slapped down for it. I think I wanted to try on being somebody else. Mm. And I think that's why I signed up immediately for a foreign exchange student program when my high school started it. And I think it was because unconsciously I realized I can be somebody else. They don't know who I am. I can go over there and start a whole new version of myself. That's so interesting. So you you have a very mm. funny story about how you thought that you needed to be not just a model but a supermodel to be able to do well as an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how that came about. Well, this was my plan. So when I studied, it was actually called a theatre major when I studied acting at Boston University. And most of the of my fellow classmates wanted to do theater. And when we graduated, pretty much en masse, everybody moved to New York to try to get on Broadway and get into plays. But I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be in movies um, instead. And I didn't even know, nobody told me that I should go to LA instead of New York if I wanted to be in movies. So I get to New York and I'm like, how am I supposed to get in a movie? This is uh, uh, this is weird. So so then I realized that at that time, Christy Brinkley was suddenly in a couple of movies, and Lauren Hutton was in a couple of movies, and and they were you know the big supermodels at the time. And I thought, well, now wait a minute. So if I can be a supermodel, <laughs> if I can be a supermodel, they'll just offer me parts. And that's the uh, way that I could become, because I guess I thought that it's so much easier to become a supermodel than an actor. (laughs) But that's what I did. I I set my sights on finding an agency, which I eventually did. And I never, ever became anything close to a supermodel. But I did get cast in my first movie through my agency. Yes. You have a story about when you worked at Ann Taylor and you did some acting slash modelling in the front window. Yes. It's a nice clothing store, business clothes, you know, upscale sort of. And I was a sales girl there and I wore, I always made a point of being fully made up and hair done and nice clothes. I would buy Ann Taylor clothes on sale so I could look really, you know, great. And one day... The window in the front was mannequins sitting at a little cafe table with plastic food in front of them. And there was an empty chair at the table. There were two mannequins and and an empty chair. And I said to my girlfriends, hey, dare me to get in the window. They were like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. And they said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So I got in the window and a couple of people were looking at the window display at the time. And they saw me sit down and then they were just staring at me like, what is she doing? What are you going to do? And so I decided to just freeze and pretend that I was a mannequin. And they knew obviously that I wasn't, but they stood there staring 
for a while and other people kept coming up and say, what are you staring at? And they said, well, just, just wait, just wait. Cause I wanted to see what I was going to do. And eventually I had to blink and, uh, everyone went, whoa. Then I froze again and more people gathered, more people. It turned into a huge crowd outside. The store ended up hiring me to be a mannequin in the window every Saturday to draw a crowd. So that was, it was a kind of little fun thing I invented for myself. That's hilarious. You sound like you always had an amazing imagination. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. As adults, sometimes that kind of gets pumped out of us and the real world is mm. sets in. But I wonder if you still use your imagination a lot. And I don't know, maybe it's an acting thing as well, but it's such an incredible gift to just have an imagination and explore that that world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I do still have a very active imagination. I'm, I'm constantly thinking of inventions that never go anywhere, um, but I always try to think of, of things like that. And I have incredibly colorful dreams mm. that are, and I have multiple dreams a night and I remember them and they're epic movies. They can be on another planet and there's a giant cast and uh, cinematography, in a, you know, with, with incredible shots, aerial shots. And this morning I had a dream that I was going to be cast in as the lead character in another pirate movie because they felt I had been such a good pirate before. <laughs> and, and then somehow I became a real pirate. People thought that I was a real pirate. So now I had to pretend that I was a real pirate. And there were ships and battles and all kinds of stuff going on. Obviously, everyone dreams every night, but only some of us remember the dreams. And I never used to remember my dreams. And then I started remembering them only a couple of months ago. But some mornings I get up and I'm like, I am exhausted (laughs) from that dream. Because it's so vivid in my mind that when I get up, I feel like, whoa, that was like really (laughs) full on and I'm exhausted. And I wonder if that's a normal way of feeling. Do you ever feel that or do you feel refreshed? I do sometimes feel like, wow, that was that was a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny. It's such an interesting thing. You're such a well-respected actor, and you've been in the most amazing, amazing films. But I want to know for you, what was that key moment where you thought, "God, I've really made it. This is really happening for me." So two times. One was when I got cast in Tootsie, the first thing yes. I auditioned for, and it's starring Dustin Hoffman and Sidney Poitier. And it was like, partly it was like, I cannot believe this. And partly it was like, well, this is what was supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel right at home here. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. So that made me feel like, well, I was right all along that this is what I was supposed to do. But then uh, I think when I got cast in Accidental Tourist, which was a book I had read and fallen in love with, and I had decided that I hated whoever the actress was that was going to get to play that character (laughs) because I would be so insanely jealous. And then I got to play the character after I'd been so invested in it, felt a little fatey, fatey yeah, yeah. perhaps, you know. Um, and I think that's so powerful for people to hear because it's that inner knowing of that I know I can do this. 
I'll end up on my feet as an actor or having that belief since you were a young child and kind of like that inner knowing that we sometimes have about things. Right. You mentioned Dustin Hoffman yeah. and Tootsie and that there was some great advice that he gave you. He gave me advice every day. It was incredible. <laughs> he, he decided that I was going to have a career and that he should really... Uh, before I go off to Hollywood and launch this career, that he should teach me everything he could. So all day long was uh, was tips and lessons from him and read a lot of books. And if you see a book that has a good role for you, see if you can buy the rights. And, you know, there was a lot, a lot of stuff. But the funny advice he gave me was to never sleep with your co-stars. It's just it's just not a good idea. And so here's what to say to them in case you get propositioned by your co-star. He said, tell them you're very attractive. I would love to, but I have a feeling it would ruin the sexual tension between us. And uh, I'm like, okay. So I squirrel that away. And then not that long later, I used it on Jack Nicholson. (laughs) I met him because... My model agent's agent took me and a couple of other models slash actresses to Hollywood, and we ended up meeting Jack Nicholson anyway. And then later I go to my hotel, and there's a message called Jack Nicholson. I was like, oh, oh my God, call Jack Nicholson. Wow, I'm going to save this message forever. And I call him and say, Mr. Nicholson, hello. This is Gina, the model. And he says... And he says, hey, Gina, so when's it going to happen? I'm like, oh, oh. Uh, Mr. Nicholson, I think you're the wrong idea. No, 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 no. He said, oh, come on, come on, I'll send a car, come on over. I said, no, well, listen, uh, Jack, uh, I have a feeling, a uh, very strong feeling that we will be working together someday, and I would hate to have ruined the sexual tension between us. <laughs> And he said, oh, man, oh, man, where'd you get that? Who told you to say that? Oh, my God. That's so funny. Dustin Hoffman coming up with the goods. It's an interesting thing, Hollywood and the whole Me Too movement that's happened because I just think that was so unbelievable and so helpful for anyone in not just acting, everywhere in the world with women's rights and feeling safe in any environment, especially work one. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about that Me Too movement and how before that time did you feel in Hollywood with the other males that you interacted with? Look, I mean, it's all very unfortunate why that even had to come about, but I feel like it's made a big shift. And like you said, it was in other industries as yeah. well. It was a real wake up call and and i think my peers and i had always felt like you can't complain about anything cuz they'll just get somebody else that we sort of knew that the female parts were second class citizens and and that the male was the star and you had to be accommodating or fit in or and and it felt like we didn't have any power even if we'd been the lead in several movies you still felt like you didn't have any power and certainly that you wouldn't complain about anything and that changed in some ways it stuck for example that uh now 
if a female actor learns that they're making less than their co-star or less than they should or whatever, they will talk about it publicly and it will get rectified. And that was never the case yeah. before. It's interesting. I met a producer, a female producer, who told me that when she was creating budgets for projects, she always assigned a quarter of the salary of the male star put aside a quarter of the amount that she figured she'd yes. play, pay the male star for the female wow. star. And then she realized, what was I doing? Why would, how, how did I just naturally feel like that was the, the thing to do without ever thinking about it? But it was a huge wake-up call. Did you have much to do with Harvey Weinstein? I had nothing to do with him, no. I didn't know about all that stuff. I always wonder when one of these things come out and even being... Bill Cosby as well. Do people know about it before? You're in that circle. Do you kind of go, oh, yeah, I've heard that Bill Cosby or, you know, I've heard about Weinstein or is it just completely no one knows? Uh, Now in hindsight, I think a lot of people knew about Harvey Weinstein. I think agents knew. He's asking to meet these young actresses in a hotel room instead of his office. And I think plenty of people knew, but they were keeping it hush-hush and and felt like he has this status, you know, mm. that we, we can't really complain about him. Or I hadn't happened to hear stories before it came out about him. I didn't know anybody who had had this experience with him. But, uh, uh, you know, I believed it instantly when I heard the stories and what had been going on with him. It was just horrifying how long it had gone yeah. on and how horrible it was. Horrible. Oh. And it reminds me even of Epstein and this whole world that people knew about, but because they had power and money, they were able to get away with it. It is so great now that there has been this movement to say, yeah, I don't care if you're one of the richest people in the world or one of the most powerful. This is not okay. Yeah, but we have to we have to see if things have really changed, if they've completely changed. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't think it's... I think there's still going to be people who have power over you who yes. want to get something for, for casting you or whatever. And, and uh, But it's certainly much less. And uh, the notion is definitely out there that you may very well get busted yes. for this now. So so I think that's a very good thing. Did you have any incidents like that during your career? Auditioning for a movie. Mm. It was very, very, very early. It was maybe my, my second audition <laughs> for something. The role... It was a very goofy comedy where I was going to play vampire who is obsessed with this character. She wants to have sex with this character. And so she's always all over him. And there's a scene in the movie where she sits on his lap and she's trying to, you know, uh, seduce him and whatever. So I go to the audition and uh, and it's just the director and a producer in the room, no casting agent. And uh, so he says, all right, let's do the scene. And I start to do it, you know, by myself. And then he's like, no, 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 do it on my lap as if I'm the character. I said, well, no, I mean, no. And I look at the producer, <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that's okay. No, thank you. And he's like, no, 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 do it, do, do. I can't tell how good it is otherwise unless you sit on my lap and do it to me. And oh, Oh, I didn't want to, and it was so 
skeevy and awful, but I didn't know how to, I didn't have words or the ability to say, well, you know what, I'd really rather not have this part then. If that's who you are, you know, I was nowhere near that person. Yes. And so I did. And, and it felt awful and it was awful. And I got the part, you know, it's always in yeah. hindsight, you wish you could have a do-over. Yes. And, uh, I want to talk about your friendship with Susan Sarandon, who, you know, who doesn't love Susan Sarandon? Yeah. She's just such a, I mean, I don't obviously know her, you do, but I mean, I just adore the work that she's done. And Thelma and Louise is such a wonderful, wonderful film that you're in. And I wonder, can you tell us a bit about what she taught you about life and, and just the friendship that you have with her? Yeah, we're we're tremendous friends. Um, Thirty-one years later, mm. she's one of my dearest friends, and I had no idea that it would be such a profound experience. I desperately wanted to be in the movie, but working with her changed my life more than anything I've ever done. And and the reason was I had evidently never spent time with a woman who says what she thinks. <laughs> And I mean, I'd been raised by women who didn't say what they think. And from the first time I met her, before we had started shooting, it was like, what? Wait, what? What is she? She just says, what she think? Completely charming, completely, you know, non-confrontational, whatever. But just, why don't we do this? Or let's not do that. Or I would like to do this. And my whole mode would be like, uh, maybe out of 12 things I want, I'll bring up one, but pretend it's a joke. <laughs> and so you don't have to do that if you don't want to, but what do you think about this? So for three months, I, you know, it was like a lesson every single day to be, spend time in her presence and see how she moves through the world. It absolutely changed my life. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I think that was the movie you'd know that catapulted Brad Pitt's career. Mm-hmm. How was working back with him when he was, he would have been a youngster then. He was, he was. I think he's about seven years younger than me. Yeah, it was great. It was great. He just was so talented and obviously mm. adorable, but but so talented and charismatic. And you just knew like, wow, this guy is, you know, going places. It, it, was, uh, it must be interesting to reflect on that. And you, obviously, that, that movie... Susan had already been an actor for a long period of time and you'd done a lot of amazing things, but that was such a, that movie just catapulted Mm -hmm. people into the limelight. It was such a good film. And what do you think about that? Oh, God, yeah. That movie was so important to me before and after and during making it um, because uh, I read the script after it had already been cast. I have somebody slip me the script and I was like, oh, my God, I have to be in this movie. Oh, no, it's already been cast. Oh, no, no. So I have my agent keep calling Ridley Scott's office every week to say, if anything happens, Gina, <laughs> Gina would really love to talk to you about this. And, da, da, da. and this went on for a year. And there were two or maybe even three sets of Thumb on Louise before it ended up being Susan and I. Really? But I... Just kept on it, kept on it, kept on it. And, and then finally, Ridley decided that he was, he was going to, he had just been the producer, but when he was going to direct it himself, he said, yes, I will meet with Gina. She's been very persistent. And I uh, somehow convinced him to cast me. So, yeah, it was that important to me. Yeah. Wow. 
You mentioned that you have ADD and it was like a late diagnosis Mm. at 41, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting because a lot of my friends are coming out now knowing that they have ADD. Right. And it kind of has helped them a lot because for a long time I think they just didn't understand why maybe their mind worked in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for you, how did that diagnosis come about and how has that changed your life? I started seeing a new therapist at 41 and maybe the second session, she said, has anybody ever told you that you might have ADD? I said, well, well, no, I can't because I'm profoundly, I'm profoundly not hyperactive. Yes. She said, yeah, but you don't, you don't have to be hyperactive. Women particularly are often not hyperactive, but you could still have attention deficit disorder. And I was like, really? So she hooked me up with somebody to get tested who said, you have a very severe case of ADD without the H. It changed everything. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything now makes sense. Wow. Because I knew things from when I was very young that didn't seem right. I couldn't finish things. I started a million thousand things and I couldn't finish them. And yeah, so so it helped enormously, like your friends. I mean, to find find out that was what it was going on. I was like, well, wait a minute. Now I can realize that and do something about it. And, you know. What kind of treatment do they give for that? Well, there are medications. Yes. I tried a couple and I didn't I didn't like it. Mm. It made me feel anxious. But it's also coming up with with techniques where you can mitigate it. For example, when I took up archery it was after I found out That's that nice. I had ADD and and I became very obsessed with it and I and I really wanted to do it. but it was hard to get myself to get to the practice field at any good time. I fritter away the entire morning and oh God, and then I feel guilty. Am I ever going to get there? So I arranged with my acting coach that he would meet me in the morning there and get me started and then take off. And I I could keep doing it once I had started doing it. So that was one version of of a tactic that I use. You became the mum in your 40s and You've had four marriages and then you decided to have kids. And I wonder how that's changed your life and how you found being a mum. I mean, there's a lot of mums in their 40s these days. Yeah, why you waited till then? Well, it just was life circumstances. I don't know that I could yes. go into some detailed explanation. But but uh, um, but thankfully it worked out. Uh, it's been amazing and I, I was really happy that I was able to do it and that because I always pictured having kids but also that it it did come later in life when I was more had more self-esteem was more confident more uh, you know evolved had a tremendous interest in kid self-esteem that I had Mm. developed over the years and so I I was I was grateful for that. You talk about at the end of your book, it's so beautiful, living authentically. And I think that's the whole idea that maybe when you were young, you didn't get to live as authentically as you wanted to. And then in your life now, you do live authentically and you do say what you want to say. And 
I just th- found that really impactful because I recently interviewed a guy on the podcast who he's a doctor and he deals with spontaneous remissions and he found that a lot of people were getting sick. But when they studied each person, they realised there were similarities and one of them was that they lived a life that was not authentic. Mm. So maybe they spent their whole life not saying what they wanted to because they didn't want to upset their husband or they didn't get to be the painter that they wanted to be because they went through law school because it made their parents feel better and they didn't want to upset them. Yeah. They spent their life not wanting to upset anyone. And then that manifested in disease. Mm. And what happened, there's other factors obviously involved, but what he found is when these so-called miracles happened and they were cured and people were like, oh, it's this freak thing that you got cured, they actually did a lot of inner work and became their authentic selves. And he says this one case that he studied of this woman who her husband was like, oh, my God, she's speaking up now and she's got this real voice and she's telling me off. But this is what she always wanted to be. She just felt she couldn't. And that's why I think your book is so wonderful because it takes us on this journey of how you got to be Mm -hmm. your authentic self. And I wonder how that's changed your life. Mm -hmm. Oh, tremendously, tremendously. And, And I'm not... 100% 100% cured. There's still uh, there's still times I'm not able to be absolutely authentic in the moment, but it it's so much better now and and I feel like I have the right to you know be authentic and and say what I think or what I what I need and and I spent so much of my life trying to make people happy, even people that later I'm like why would I even want to make that person happy you know why is that even somebody that i care would think of me as incredibly compliant or nice or something you know it's changed everything about my life i just get happier and happier because because i get more and more in charge of my of my life which is yeah it's just the best what is a life of greatness to you i guess i would say a version of a life of greatness that i can think of would be as much as possible paying attention, being aware of your life as you go through it. As you know, even if it can be moment to moment, I'm living in the moment, not thinking about the past or beating yourself up about what happened before or being obsessed with. And that means I'm with this person right now. How can I treat them kindly or how can I help them or how can how can I stand up for myself in this moment? What do I think about this? What do I want to do? How can I bond with this person? How can I improve my relationship? Whatever it is, just be present, be aware mm. as you move through life. Gina Davis, thank you so much for all the work you've done. I mean, you're not only such a wonderful campaigner of women's rights, but you've written this book, Dying of Politeness, and before we got on, we were talking about how vulnerable you were within the book, and that can be a hard thing at times. But the book will change lives. I'm really grateful for that and for the conversation that we've had today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, 
where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.